The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing today? So it's that time of year. If some of you guys might remember, we were part of the Rogue Valley Mobile Pack last year, and it was such an awesome, awesome opportunity and went so well that we're going even more full steam this year to be a part of it. Um, your church now, because of your guys' giving, we've already purchased an entire pallet of food. That one pallet of food is going to feed 21 kids for an entire year. So we've already done that as a church, but now we're asking you guys, for those of you to, to just pray about and think about on your way out, Jason Licato is going to be at the desk out here for Rogue Valley Mobile Pack. He will have jars like this for you. Well, not exactly like this because this one has money in it. He's not going to give you guys money because everybody would sign up for that, right? But um, the idea is, just as you saw in the video, to put one of these on your table and be able to start now with your kids, with your friends, with your family, talking about the fact that, man, as blessed as we are, and we're not, we're not trying to put guilt on Americans because we're blessed. We are blessed, and that is the provision of God, and we're thankful for that. But at the same time, it gives us opportunity to talk about and pray for those all over the world that are not blessed in the same way with food as we are. And um, if you guys want to start doing this and then bring that back to the Connect Desk anytime between now and November, there's also going to be an organizational meeting for all of you that want to start talking about how you can help Jason and how we can help get this thing off the ground. That'll be this coming Tuesday night at 6 p.m. over here at the Hub. Our office is right next door. Um, and then we'll start doing early registration for signups in October, and the event itself will take place in November. So uh, just start planning on that. You're going to get more information. Stop by and talk to Jason and the gang out there um, on your way out. Um, if you guys would, grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high, wave it around as if you had no concerns, and we will make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. Um, I do have a couple more announcements. Um, Awana registrations, uh, this is week two of a three-week head start that if you're part of the Heritage family here, we've given you guys before we open up registration to the rest of the valley. Um, because of the number of volunteers that we have this year, we are going to end up having to cap that. There's just nothing we can do about that. So make sure if you're here, you want your kid to be involved, make sure you get signed up right away. Um, also, just check your bulletin. There's all sorts of other events going on. There's men's summer seminary, women's fall retreat, flip five... Let me try that again. Flip side of 50 activities. We have a Heritage Basics class coming up in September. If you're interested in becoming a member here at Heritage, there's a lot of stuff going on. Check on that, if you will. And then finally, um, as you guys know, we give away books here once in a while. We only have two rules. Rule number one is you have to read it. Rule number two is you have to pass it along. This uh, might be of particular interest. I thought people were going to jump up and fight over it this morning, but um, this is a book by Matthew Sleeth. He's a doctor, and the book's called 24-6, A Prescription for a Happier, Healthier Life, and it's about the idea of rest. So if you're tired, if you find that your life has gotten away from even the biblical mandate that we rest, this book might be for you. So I'll have one of them right here. I'll have one of them over here. And then someone recycled a couple of Francis Chan books. Always a hit. You guys can help yourself to that. In the meantime, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you guys would do me a favor, let's stand together in honor of the reading of the word of God. And then we're going to dive into a really tricky passage. I made it through last service with only one cough. Let's see if we can do that again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we just uh, pause before you now, and, and Lord, I just ask for a special measure of your grace as we look at a really difficult, confusing, controversial, hard-to-understand passage. And I pray, God, that your spirit would be in this place this morning, that you would awaken our minds and hearts and souls to understand what you would have for us to take from this, and that, Lord, our time here would be beneficial to your kingdom, that we would not only grow to be more like you, but to carry your gospel outside of this place to build your kingdom and to spread the love of Jesus around the world. So, Lord, may you just have your way with us in this room. And I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, today, this is the text that as we've been studying through First and Second Thessalonians, this is the one that I looked at in advance and thought, maybe I could be on vacation that week. Maybe I could let Jeremy do that one. Maybe I could let Sam do that one and then get all the emails and all that kind of stuff. It's a, this is a really difficult passage. In fact, it has been argued by many people that this is the hardest to understand passage in all of the Apostle Paul's writings. All of them. So much so that maybe you've heard of an early church father who was a pretty smart guy named Augustine. And Augustine said this about this particular text. He said, I frankly confess that the meaning of this passage escapes me. Don't worry, Augustine, I got it. No, I'm just, I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding. Um, This is one of those texts where we're going to say, I don't know a lot. This is one of those passages that we're going to come to with some humility and go, you know what, there's some mystery here. And so what we're going to do, we're going to approach it, we're going to try to bring some, some cultural context to it to help us maybe understand what's going on, some history that actually would have played into this and helped the people in this church understand it in its original writing. And then at the end, we're going to kind of come around and say, well, so what about that? Like, what does this mean to us and what can we take away from this text? So that's going to be our goal as we go through this particular passage. And so it's important that we understand something of the context. I know we've been down 
down this road before, but it's really important that we understand what's going on here um, because it really plays into everything that's being talked about in this text in particular. So as you know, we've been saying this all summer, right? As you know, in Thessalonica, the apostle Paul came and he planted a church. He was there, the Bible tells us, for about three weeks or three Sabbaths, so a month at the most. And he would go into the synagogues and reason with the people there. He would teach the Bible, teaching the gospel, and creating, building this first church here in the city of Thessalonica. The problem is, is his message was offensive to the people there. Acts chapter 17 tells the story, and it says that as he went into the city, he was preaching of this new king, Jesus. That was the message. And so all the people in this city who have sworn allegiances to Rome, sworn allegiances to Caesar, and then have all these other gods. There's so many pagan gods in this city that they're all worshiping. They begin to get really upset as this message grows and grows and grows. And so in the end, Paul has to be taken out, snuck out of the city because persecution was getting so intense. They had to sneak Paul out so he could go about continuing his mission and planting churches. So Paul gets snuck out. He's only been there for three weeks. There was so much more he wanted to do. He goes on to the next city. He ends up in Corinth. While he's in Corinth, he sends someone back to Thessalonica to check on these guys and find out what's going on because he's worried about what's going on. And when the report comes back to him in Corinth, they say, Paul, they're doing good, man. I mean, persecution's severe and it's getting worse, but they're faithful. They've, they've not abandoned their beliefs. They've, they've held on to the truth. They've held on to the gospel. And so Paul's so excited, he writes 1 Thessalonians. And in that letter, he's just gushing over them. He's just praising God that they're still doing well. And in that letter, he encourages them by telling them about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's telling them. Guys, there's this King Jesus. That's the overarching message that he's had the entire time. And so here they are, this king, or they're part of this new kingdom with this new king, but they feel so underpowered and there's so much persecution around them and, and Rome is in charge and Rome, Rome dominates the world at this time, keep in mind. And so it's really, um, it, would, it would make sense that after a while they're thinking, okay, where's our king? I mean, what kind of kingdom are we a part of? We're dying. We're getting beat up. What's going on? And Paul says, listen, trust me, hang in there because the king is coming. And in 1 Thessalonians, it's one of the more predominant texts about the return of Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. He tells them, the king is coming and you're going to be with him forever. And those people that are persecuting you, he's going to deal with them and you will rule and reign with our king forever. So hang in there, keep the mission going, keep spreading the gospel. And he just encourages them to keep living out their new identity as followers of Jesus. But now we're in 2 Thessalonians and now... Time has gone by. So they've gotten the word. All right, king's coming. Life's rough. Persecution's hot. But our king's coming. I can hang in there. I can do this. And so a day goes by, and a week goes by, and a month goes by. And now as much as a year has gone by, and nothing's changed. In fact, if anything's changed, it's gotten worse. Persecution's gotten worse. This hope that they've been holding on to that Jesus is going to come back and rescue them from all this opposition that they're dealing with, it hasn't happened yet. But something has happened. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
So in the time from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians, someone has come in and started a lie. And the people in this particular church have believed it. And the lie is, the day of the Lord has already happened. Jesus has already come back, and you're still here. You're still suffering. He forgot about you. He ignored you. He didn't help you. He couldn't save you. The day of the Lord has already happened. And remember, they don't have Twitter. They don't have CNN. They don't have any of those other things. They were probably happier because of it. But anyway, they don't have any of those other things where they can actually look back and figure out what's going on in the rest of the world. I mean, it takes a long time for news to travel around. And so over time, these guys start believing that lie. Man, what if, what if the day of the Lord has come? What if this king we've been waiting for is never going to come and rescue us? We've been hoping things were going to get better and they're actually getting worse. And what if we never get out of this? And what if persecution gets worse? And what if they come for me? And what if? And what if? And they're struggling. The words here where he speaks about being shaken and about being alarmed, they're really intense emotional words. It means they were freaking out. There was anxiety. There was fear. They were struggling because they were so worried that the king they had been so faithfully holding on to in the midst of all this persecution, we're holding on to him. And now they've been told by someone that he's already come and they're left behind. And Paul's like, listen, I don't want you to be shaken. I don't want you to be distressed. I don't want you freaking out thinking that you've missed out on this. Verse three, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, back up one second. This is a tough passage. So before we talk about some of these kind of things, we need to remind ourselves, why is Paul writing this letter? What is the purpose of what he's doing here? What's he intending to do with the people of the, in, in Thessalonica? And his purpose is to comfort them against a lie that is causing them great distress. His purpose is not to give them some specific, detailed, step-by-step timeline of everything that's going to happen in the future. That's not his purpose. I mean, that would be just no different than like some seminary class. Start the letter out. Hey guys, here it is. So anyway, here's the next thing I want you guys to learn. Here's how things are going to go down. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing purposefully and clearly is, hey, I don't want you guys to be freaked out. I don't want you guys to be afraid thinking that this has happened. And so he's writing with the sole purpose of encouraging them and comforting them and dealing with this lie that has been told to them. And the information that Paul is imparting to them is information he has already given them once before. And that's where the problem comes for us. So as you look forward, not to go too far and forward, but in verse 5 he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So here's the challenge. This letter you can read start to finish in about 15 minutes. But Paul was with them for like three weeks to a month. So we know for a fact, it stands to, obviously stands to reason, we don't have everything here written down that Paul had told them. And Paul's writing to them and he's calling them to call to mind the things he had already told them, which causes us a problem because 
he's reminding them of things they already know. And their knowing of that is the reason that we don't know everything here. You know? Track with me again. They know this stuff. Therefore, Paul's not detailing everything to them because they know it. And because they know it and because Paul's not detailing, we don't know all this stuff. So we need to remember the context of what's happening here. This is a real letter written to real people. And we need to understand the reality that Paul's not giving a detailed step-by-step account. So therefore, anytime we come to stuff like this, there should be some humility on our side that comes to us and goes, you know what? This is tricky. There's gaps here. There's things here that we don't know everything about. So we can look at it and study it to the best of our ability and by the grace of God get some understanding and and stuff out of it. But so many people have so dogmatically come to passages like this that just are filled with a lot of mystery still and been dogmatic about things and divided with one another within the church over some of these kind of things. And that ought not be what we do. The purpose here was to bring comfort to the church, certainly not division. So this is what Paul's doing here. And Paul tells them this. He's saying, listen, guys, you can't have missed the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, remember, going all the way back in the Old Testament is that day that's referred to when God will return and he will judge and destroy those who are oppressing his people. It goes all the way back to the Exodus and the Passover from when they were delivered from Pharaoh and they celebrated the day. And that's what they've been talking about ever since. The day of the Lord. The day that God will deliver us from those who are oppressing us. And so they are waiting on this new day of the Lord when King Jesus will return and make things the way they're supposed to be. He will make the universe right again. He will judge his enemies. He will rescue his people. He will bring healing to the world. He will resurrect the dead. All of these things, that's what they're waiting on. And Paul says to him, listen, You haven't missed it yet, and you can know that you haven't missed it yet because there's something that has to happen right before that that hasn't happened yet. And the thing he talks about refers to this particular man, this son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, uh, son of perdition, some of your texts may say. The word that's most commonly used to refer to the man that Paul's speaking of in this text is antichrist. There's going to be this antichrist and he's going to come up and lead this rebellion. He's going to go into the temple of God. He's going to declare that he is God and demand that he be worshiped. And then the day of the Lord is going to happen. And even in those verses already, Paul hints at what he's going to tell us in just a minute. The idea of calling him son of destruction is actually speaking of his destiny. So it means this, this one is going to come and cause this rebellion, but he is destined for destruction. And the destruction that's going to happen to him is the day of the Lord. And it hasn't happened yet, so you don't have to be freaked out thinking that God has forgotten you because this event hasn't happened. Now I should tell you, when it speaks about rebellion in this, te- in this text, when it says this rebellion is going to occur, it means a specific event. It doesn't mean like an overarching philosophy or or. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mindset of rebellion. There's always been rebellion against God. He's talking about an event, like a political rebellion, a military rebellion, like the rebellion is what he's talking about. And the language he's using here, if you understand history leading up to this point, is not uncommon. This is not something that they would go, man, we've never heard of anything like this before. 
Because in history, these sorts of things have actually occurred. For example, there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, his name Epiphanes was the, that he gave himself that name, by the way. He was Antiochus. He added Epiphanes. Epiphanes means literally God manifest. In other words, he's saying this, I am Antiochus, God in the flesh. And he literally demanded that people worship him as God. And he was mad. He was crazy. The Jewish people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which literally means the mad one. And he literally went into, he outlawed Jewish worship of God in the temple, went into the Jewish temple, erected an altar to Zeus, and then took a pig, put a pig on the Jewish altar and slaughtered it as a sacrifice to this God Zeus, which is like the most defaming, insulting thing you could do in the Jewish temple in that time. So Antiochus Epiphanes has done this before. There was the Roman general Pompey who entered into the Holy of Holies in 63 BC, went into not just the temple, but into the Holy of Holies demanding to be worshipped. And then there was Caligula who in 41 AD had ordered that a statue of himself be erected inside the temple so that everyone could stop worshipping the Jewish God and start worshipping him. Now, fortunately, he was murdered before that. He was quite mad himself. He actually not only deified himself, but he claimed his horse was God as well. So you know he was crazy. And he, but fortunately, he was murdered before then, or there would have been a massive bloody revolt at that time instead of the one that would actually happen about 30 years later, which we'll get to later on. So these are things that have happened before. It is not a strange thing that a man has gone into the temple, claimed to be God, and demanded to be worshipped. But all of those events have already happened. And Paul's saying there is going to be an event where a man is going to come in. He's going to lead a rebellion. This Antichrist will come into the temple, claim that he is God, and demand to be worshipped. And this is what's going to happen right before the day of the Lord. So you don't need to be upset thinking you missed out on the return of Jesus because that hasn't happened yet. And even the language Paul is using here is language they would be familiar with because he's drawing from Isaiah, he's drawing from Matthew 24, he's drawing from the visions in Daniel. So he's using scripture to say these things. And then in verse 5 he says, as I said, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I told you these things? And then in verse 6 he says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. You know what's restraining him. You guys want to know what's restraining him? We don't know. Paul asks the question, says, you guys know this. We had talked about this before and never gives us the answer. So an honest approach to biblical interpretation about this verse, the honest answer is, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. People have tried to explain it. People have tried to say, the reason this Antichrist has not led this rebellion yet is because the Roman Empire is in charge or because political leaders of the time, or because the gospel's being proclaimed and that's holding him at bay, or because the power of God himself, or the presence of the church in the world, the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of different theories, and they are theories, that people have come up with to try to explain why this event has not occurred yet. But the honest truth is, every theory out there has its difficulties. We just don't know. And it was with regards to that verse in particular that Augustine said, I frankly confess that the meaning of this passage escapes me. Augustine was pretty smart. I'm going to defer to him. Amen? We don't know. 
then what's the point of studying all this stuff? Hang in there. Look at verse 7, what he does say. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, track with me. This leader is going to lead a rebellion and deceive people and demand to be worshipped. And he is being restrained. He has not been revealed yet. He's not been, uh, we don't know who he is. That's been restrained. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So in other words, this particular entity, this person that we refer to as Antichrist has not yet done this thing that Paul says is going to occur. But there's a spirit of, there's this mystery of lawlessness. There's, there's a spirit of what that guy is about that is already at play in the world around us. Now there's a lot of speculation here, but I think scripture actually gives us pretty good window into what Paul's talking about because John actually says this in first John two eighteen, He says, children, It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So he says, there's an Antichrist to come, but even now, there's many Antichrists that have come, or that are coming. There are many that have done the same thing. So you might say, Antichrist with a little a, before the big dog shows up. These are shadows of what's going to happen. So what does he mean by that? Well, the same author of that text writes the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, um, is this, this scene where Satan is revealed. And then in Revelation chapter 13, two beasts are introduced. In Revelation chapter 13, it tells us the first beast is the Antichrist, who has this direct attack savage attack against God's people. The second one is this false prophet who is also going to attack God's people, but it's more of an end around. It's more of a philosophical, I'm going to fool them into deception. And there's this reoccurring thing that is said in that particular passage. It says of the Antichrist that he will appear to have a mortal wound and then he will come back. He will appear to have a mortal wound, and then he will come back. And there's a lot of speculation about that. What does that mean? Does that mean he dies and rises again? Like, what does all that mean? Well, there's a guy named D.A. Carson who's considered one of the most preeminent New Testament theologians of our time. And I think his explanation sheds some light on this. Even, Even if from a timeline perspective he's not exactly accurate, the spirit of what he's talking about, I think, is evident in all these things. And this is what he says. This idea, if, if you have, you either have a mortal wound or you don't have a mortal wound. If you appear to have a mortal wound and you die, you had a mortal wound and you died. So people with mortal wounds don't tend to come back. And so he takes it a little less literal than what the text is. And he says, we've actually seen this happen historically. So he would say, go all the way back to the Exodus, for example. And there's a guy named Pharaoh. You guys remember Pharaoh? He was dominating the people of Israel. They were enslaved And what does he do? There's this same spirit of coming against and seeking to destroy the people of God that happens. So what happens? The people of Israel are his slaves. But even though they're his slaves, they're God's people. And so God is blessing them. So they're growing and growing and growing. And what does he end up doing? Well, the whole story of Moses starts Moses being rescued because Pharaoh's trying to kill all the male children. It's a form of genocide that's taking place in that sense where Pharaoh is trying to kill the people. And so what happens? Moses comes before Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron. 
And what is it that their message is? To tell Pharaoh there's a new king, a king you don't know about. Remember Moses even says, who will I tell him sent me? You tell them, I am that I am. I am the God above all gods. And so they go before Pharaoh and they say, you are not God. All these gods that you worship, all of these false gods everywhere, they are false gods. The true and living God, you are persecuting his people and he demands that you submit to his rule and let the people go. And he refuses. And you guys know, back and forth, back and forth. Well, what ends up happening? Pharaoh is destroyed. He suffers a mortal wound. But Antichrist comes back. Fast forward again to the book of Esther and there's a man named Haman. Haman and Idumean, who the Idumean people, there's a history against the Jewish people that they have that's pretty complex. And he hatches this elaborate plan how he's going to destroy all the Jewish people and have them hung. Does he succeed, church? No. He actually ends up dying by his own, his own demise or his own plan ends up killing him. He suffers a mortal wound, but Antichrist comes back. Think of the story of Jesus when he's born. There's a man named Herod, also an Idumean, by the way. And he hears that, what? There's another king who's been born or supposed to be born. And so he decides, I will eradicate these Jewish children because I will not allow that king to be born, to grow up and to take over my rule. And so he has that same spirit attacking the people of God and wiping out all of these children. Does he succeed? No, eventually Herod would die, but he'll suffer a mortal wound. But Antichrist comes again and Antiochus Epiphanes and Pompey and all of these guys, one day there'll be a man named Hitler who will come against the people of Israel, who will go to wipe out some 10 million people, but will he succeed in that same thing? No, he will suffer a mortal wound and Antichrist will come back. And what he believes and what this text here in 2 Thessalonians seems to be saying is that there's going to be, even though the ultimate antichrist is to come in those end days when jesus returns there is a spirit of there's that mystery of lawlessness that's still at play it's this idea of the full spiritual warfare that goes around uh, goes on around us all the time that is attacking the people of god this spirit is still at play and it will culminate with this great leader now here's the scary part all of those other ones have been restrained <laughs> hitler was restrained Antiochus Epiphanes was restrained. Pharaoh was restrained. Herod was restrained. All of these other things are a shadow of what is to come. It makes us think the horror of what this leader will look like and what he is attempting to do to God's people and to the world is unbelievable. The text even goes on to say that he will be empowered by Satan, as you're going to see. Like, that's not just like he's, he's pretending. That's not like a David Blaine thing where you're like, that dude's just weird. I don't know how he pulls this stuff off. No, that's not illusions. like really empowered by Satan. And you go, my goodness, if such a leader should arise... <coughs> If such a threat should come against the church, how will we ever have a chance? How would the people of God ever be able to sustain it? And if you're the Thessalonian people who are in persecution right now, remember, for us, this is really easy to read because we're probably not going to get shot for our faith when we leave. But they're under persecution right now. And now they're hearing that there's this whole other leader that's going to come up and start an even bigger rebellion and all this kind of stuff. How will they ever survive that? Verse 8, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing 
by the appearance of his coming. They're not given a vivid description of all the details, but they're given a promise. Yeah, Jesus will just breathe and he's gone. What do you mean? He assemble an army, like go into some kung fu moves? Like, how is he going to take all this? Uh, just the, uh, the power and majesty of this king, Jesus, when he returns, his mere appearance guarantees the eradication of the greatest and most wicked human leader that we've ever seen. He has no shot against the power and majesty of our new king, Jesus. He has nothing. I mean, this guy's going to be bad, bad to the bone. And he's nothing compared to the king that's going to return. Now, he's telling them this again for two reasons. He's trying to first reassure them. And guys, remember, this hasn't happened yet. So you haven't missed the day of the Lord. You can be at peace. And, And he's telling them he's doing this also to build and encourage them to just say also, by the way, your persecutors are going to get theirs. I mean, think how weak these guys feel. It's a tiny three-week-old church in Macedonia under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, and they're being told they're part of a kingdom. It looks like our kingdom's losing, Paul. Oh, hang in there, guys. Our king is coming, and he is mighty, and they'll get theirs. You'll be delivered, and they'll get theirs. God has not forgotten you, and he has not forgotten your persecutors. He says in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Um, we just mentioned that. Like I've said, the David Blaine thing. You guys know who David Blaine is, right? Has anybody ever watched David Blaine? Some weird stuff that dude does, right? Like there's, you watch some stuff and you're like, okay, that's, that's weird. He's either a really good illusionist or he's empowered by Satan. It's one of those two things. But this isn't an if and or but. This is, this is legit. Like this is a demonic entity that's taking place here. And then verse 10, and this is where it gets really important for us today. Um, The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. When Christ comes, the enemy will be vanquished, and so will the enemy's followers. And so there can be a sense... I, I, I guess a sports analogy is the best one I can think of. I used it in the morning. I don't, this morning, I don't know if it's the best example or not. But, but if your sports team is really good and they're going into a big ball game, a championship game or something, you know how like you can see the stats and they do the hype videos and they do all this kind of stuff and, and you watch and you can just get pumped up for the game. Like, yeah, we're going to get them. And the whole idea of all this stuff is to pump up the fans and get them all psyched up and to just get you so charged up because we are following this team that's going to win. Like they're the best and you just kind of get pumped up. So there's an element where Paul is doing that with the church in telling them like, you serve the king that rules, that reigns, that will win. You are not the weak little church you think you are. You are on the king of king, you are on the king of kings team. But but it should switch straight from a yes to a sadness the moment that we read that text. Because it's not just about like a demonic punishment in terms people we know and love are gonna perish forever apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. And so that should actually fuel the mission to spread the gospel to other people more and more and more. You understand? 
Like it, it should pump us up. Our king is powerful. Our king is victorious. Antichrist, all those enemies, they can't even come close to how powerful Jesus is. But he's going to deceive a whole lot of people. And apart from the truth, they're going to die. And we need to bring the truth to them. And we need to take advantage of every single day. There should be sorrow in our heart for that. And the reason that they're going to experience that sort of, uh, uh, of death, that they're going to perish, is because they do not believe the truth about who Jesus is. Romans 1 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's people that are rejecting the truth of Jesus and that's condemning them. And that should break our hearts. There should always be this balance between our king wins and their king is deceiving people that you know, people you know, people you love, people you work with, people you're related to. They need the truth. And they've been deceived by an enemy with a spirit of rebellion against God. And they need the truth. It should only fuel the flames of us wanting to share the gospel and show the love of Jesus to people around us. So this is what he's telling them. And then in verse 11, and this is a tough one. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You go, wait, 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 Jeff. God sent them a delusion? Like, I get it that they don't have the truth and they don't believe that Satan's deceived them into not trusting in God. I see that in scripture from Genesis 3 on, but now it says that God sent them a delusion that they would believe the lie and then be punished? How does that work? Well, let's go back again to this story of Pharaoh. Remember the story. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh over and over and over. And what is it they're declaring? There is a king. You are subject to this king. What you are doing is against the rule of this king. It is against the will of this king. It is against the people of this king. It is an affront to this king. And this king demands you submit and let the people go. So Pharaoh hears about the king. He hears the testimony of the king. And what does he do? The text says his heart was hardened. I will hold on to my rule. I will not submit to what this king wants. I will not submit to this rule. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm king. I'm God. I will hold on to this. And he refuses to do it. And so they come back again and they come back again and they come back again. And Pharaoh was given opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity, there were signs and wonders, there were plagues, there were all of these things happening over and over and over, that if you study them in, on your own, go and look, even the plagues that happen are specific plagues that attack the Egyptian gods that they worshipped. All of it designed to say there is a king, 
And every time he said, I will not bow my knee to that king. I will not bow to that king. I will not bow to that king. And it says it by saying over and over, his heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. And then it changes and it says, and God hardened his heart. And what does that mean? It means God just said, okay, believe your lie. Okay. Hold on to your delusion. You can have what you asked for. In Romans chapter 1, it actually goes on to say in that same text that God gave them over to their lusts. And what it means is that there's a certain point when God's like, all right, I've done all I can do. I've I've shared everything with you. I've shown all of this to you and you have hardened your heart. So I'm going to allow you to chase what you want. Be your king. You've chosen your team. Ride that out. See how that goes. God will not strive with man forever. And people go, that seems so mean. Why would God do such a thing that it's not mean? Because the Bible also tells us in 1 Peter that there's going to be people talking about the return of Jesus that go, you guys, you've been saying forever, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming back, Jesus, it's the last days. You guys have been saying that forever. And every day just goes on like the other. And every day is exactly the same. And you say it over and over, it never happens. And Peter's response is, Look, the Lord is not slack. He hasn't forgotten. He has not bailed on his promise. He's not taking his time. What does it say? It says that he is patient, not willing that any should perish. And what's his plan to reach people so that they don't perish? He's given the gospel to his church that we would carry the good news of Jesus to others, that they might be saved. And that those who reject that truth, then they'll get the lie that they've chosen. But that's why we're still here. The the only reason we are still here today is because there are people out there that need the gospel. And plan A, God's plan A for reaching the world with the gospel is the church. There is no plan B. This is why we're here. This is our calling. This is what we do. And that should make us grieve for those that don't know Jesus and give us passion to not just go out and do this hardcore proclaiming, the destruction's coming, you're all going to die, but to come like Jesus did who came alongside people even in their trouble, show them grace, mercy, love, feed the hungry. Things like feed my starving children can com- become platforms for bringing the truth of Jesus Christ to, to the world around us so that with mercy we declare truth. Amen? So that's all good. But overall, when we step back and we look at this whole text about Antichrist, and that's for the Thessalonian people, and they're in persecution, but we're not. Like, so what's the purpose of all this? Like, why does this matter to me, Jeff? Why in the world did you get me out of bed on a Sunday morning to hear about Antichrist and all this weird stuff? Well, two things I think can actually um, um, encourage us and speak to us this morning. Let's go back to purpose. Why does Paul tell him this? Why do we need to know this? Why does the Bible write about Antichrist and all these sort of weird things? Again, the purpose is not to give them this detailed outline that in order says, here's what's going to go down. And when this happens, start locking your doors and build your bunker. And when this happens, you know, that's not the purpose. The purpose of this is to encourage a church that's been shaken, feeling they've missed out on their king. But why? Why? Just so they'll feel better? No. 
as you're going to see as we move into the text, the purpose is to encourage them that they might stand firm and continue the mission that God's given them of spreading the gospel to the world around them. The purpose of all Bible prophecy is to encourage the church, help us realize it's worth it. Jesus is coming. Now go, spread the gospel. Be part of the kingdom. Don't just go get weird by doing nothing but studying prophecy. So many people that study Bible prophecy, they make these kinds of things an end in and of themselves. Like, I just want to learn the information. But the information's given for a purpose. It's meant to do something in you. The thing that it's meant to do is cause you to be godly, gracious, kingdom-minded people that are going out and loving and sharing the gospel to the world around us. And I can prove this. With Jesus' own words. I told you guys Matthew 13. Matthew 13, or I'm sorry, not Matthew 13, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is a just chopped full of this kind of apocalyptic, end of the world kind of language. Like darkened moons and all these kinds of stuff, right? Which is kind of fitting with the eclipse tomorrow. Ooh, all this stuff, right? So, as the Lord would will, I guess, right? It's just going to be smoky. We're not even going to see it. Anyway. <coughs> I'm going to read through Mark chapter 13. And now I am not dissecting any of this. Like it, there's stuff in here that you're like, what does that mean? And what is all that? That is not our purpose here today. What I want you to do as we read through this, I want you to think about what is Jesus doing here? What's he trying to encourage the apostles to do? What's his purpose in what's doing? And, and then the other thing I want you to watch for are the similarities. It's almost identical to the thing that Paul is doing with the Thessalonian church. And I think it's going to make some things maybe come together for some. So take a look, if you will, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 13. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Speaking of the temple. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. Now, in Israel, I've been there. Some of you guys have. The temple mounts right here. There's a little bitty valley, and then it goes up a hill. Mount of Olives, we would not call it a mount in southern Oregon. We would call it a bump. Like, Roxianne is way bigger than the Mount of Olives, okay? Um, but that's, that's what they call it. It's what it is there. So the temple mounts right here. That There's a tiny little valley, and it goes up on this hill, and they're really, really close together. So they're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple, looking at the city where all this stuff's supposed to go down. And they ask him privately, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what, is, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Sounding familiar already? Many people are going to come and say, I'm God. Don't listen. Verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. This is persecution, just like the Thessalonians are going through, right? You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. There's that word again. Do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated, and, excuse me, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, this idea of coming into the temple, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it not happen winter. For in those days there will be a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. All the other tribulations you've been through are nothing compared to what will happen. And if the Lord had not cut short his days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. It's tomorrow. And the moon will not give its light. I'm just kidding in case anyone prints that. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Interesting. The powers in the heavens will be shaken, not the people of God. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as a branch becomes tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, eats with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. Do n you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's not giving them a roadmap to all the details of things that are to happen. He's speaking to them to give them some general ideas of what it's going to look like. But his purpose is telling them, stay awake. The gospel has to go throughout the world. He's preparing his disciples in that moment to go start the church. And that same message comes to us. That's why the scriptures talk about when Jesus comes, don't be in, in a place where you're regretting that he came, but be about the kingdom of God. So the purpose of these writings is to encourage you, church, that look, Jesus is coming. Death will not reign forever. Jesus is going to put everything back together. But it's not just to give us courage so we feel better about ourselves. It's to give us courage so we continue the mission of God, not so we just sit back and do nothing. This is what we're called to do, church. It's the only reason he hasn't come yet, because this is our job. That's the purpose 
of Bible prophecy. And then there's another thing. You're going to have to track with me on this one. i got to wrap this up. But what is it that Paul uses to bring them peace in the midst of their fear and anxiety that they have? Like, remember, they're worked up because they are afraid that God forgot them. They're afraid that God left them. And so Paul comes in to encourage them. And what is it that he uses to diffuse the lie that they bought into? He uses the truth right? He says, hey, remember what I told you? Remember the things that I've taught you? These things are true. You can bank on this stuff. He's doing it with the truth. And you go, well, what does that have to do with us? Here's what I would say. Any anxiety we experience as humans today, any fear, any doubt, any uncertainty, any worry, no matter what it is, Christian, if you're experiencing any of those things, if there is a hint of hopelessness anywhere in your life, it's there because you bought into a lie. You have forgotten that God is good. You have forgotten that God has plans. You have forgotten that God is going to do good things, that he's going to ultimately deliver us one day in heaven. You have forgotten that you are a child of God and that he is a good father who takes care of his children. You have forgotten that he's king and you've bought into the lies of the enemy that say, God's not taking care of me. God's not working this out. This thing is going to end me. This situation's never going to resolve and I'll never be happy. Things are never going to be better. And fears and anxieties and all those things come in. Any fear, any doubt, any anxiety that we have, the root of that anxiety is that we bought into a lie and we need to remind ourselves over and over and over of the truth of God. Now, disclaimer, those of you been tracking with me for a few years, you know me better than this. There's anxieties and fears and depressions that we need to go actually seek the help of someone who is trained, who can help walk us through those things. I am not saying everyone bail on your medication and everyone bail on counseling. All you need is the Bible and you'll be fine. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying you will never be able to truly deal with the root of the fears and anxieties that you have if you're not confronting the lies that are in there with the truth of God. And so church, we have got to be people of the book that are constantly being reminded of the truth that you're a child of God, that Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid the price for your sins so that you could be not just saved, but adopted, that you're a joint heir with him and that no matter how bad things get for us here, one day you will rule and reign with Christ forever. That the cancer that has you will never fully end you. That whatever it is that we're dealing with is not the end of the story for us because there is a King Jesus and the day of the Lord is coming. We need to remind ourselves of this. So church, have you put your Bible down this summer? Like I know how that goes, right? Summer. We don't study in the summer. Nothing. Are you kidding me? Like everyone's been through those seasons. Every pastor goes through those seasons. But maybe it's time to pick the book back up. Maybe it's time to start reminding ourselves of the truth. Because man, I'll tell you what, you don't have to look very far right now to hear from everyone in every corner, on every website, every blog, every news story about how the world has fallen apart, right? But there is a king. And he is powerful and he is good 
and he desperately loves you and he's coming again. And until that day, he wants you to be encouraged by that news that you might spread the love of Jesus to those outside. And one day, maybe right in the middle of one of those acts of kindness and goodness and love, the sky is going to part open and Jesus Christ is going to return. Be caught sharing the gospel on that day. Don't be caught asleep. Amen, church? Will you guys stand with me and let's pray. It's interesting how the passage starts because the people are shaken because they bought into a lie. Then you read the stories of Jesus. You read what the end result is going to be for Antichrist and all of them. It's the people of God are built on the truth of God. They will not be shaken. Those who are the enemy of God, they will be. May we be found on that one side. So, Father, to that end, I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, bring us into a new season of just dwelling on your truth. Lord, your word actually tells us in this text that those who, who perish do so because they failed to have love for the truth. And so I pray, God, for everyone in this room that you would grant us by your spirit a renewed love and passion for your word, for your truth. That you would encourage your people. You would address fears, anxieties, and doubts. And you would help us to remember how good you are, how much you love us and care for us, that we are not alone that we would look to the cross as the reminder of how much you love us and that you would then empower us, Lord, against doubts, against fears, against mockery, against persecution should it come, that we might share the love of God throughout this world, that we might carry the gospel to people in our community, even in our families that desperately need it. And I pray, God, you would save many through this church. Lord, bring people to Jesus through this church, we pray. I pray, God, you'd bless these people, that this just wouldn't be some vain Bible study that we went through and now we just go about our week. But, Lord, may we carry this message to the world that's so desperate.